You're listening to the Kunzercast, featuring James Howard Kunzler, author of Too Much Magic, The Long Emergency, and The World Made by Hand novel. Cast. Thanks for listening in. Well, it's the first day of summer in upstate New York. Very beautiful today here. And uh, overnight, though, the Asian stock markets have been going apeshit as the Chinese banking system has a seizure. And I think we know now what prompted tens of thousands of people in China to line up to buy gold over the last month. Uh, Japan continues to commit financial harry carry in a kind of a steady way. And Europe is quietly melting down in the background. They have no idea what they're going to do about their debt problems. And you can be sure that the USA is not that far behind as instability seeps through the global banking system. Uh, Street violence is breaking out in unexpected places. Sweden, Turkey, Brazil. Isn't that a surprise? Uh, Those are not the places that we generally think about as being uh, places in great distress, but there you have it. Unexpected things happen. Black swans are flying around out there. And who knows, maybe Kansas is next. Maybe people in Wichita will be marching down the street with flaming brands. My guest today is George Mobis, professor of computer science and system science at the University of Washington Tacoma campus. George and I have met several times over the years on the conference circuit. We met up again last week at Burlington, Vermont, for the Biophysical Economists Conference. George is also the author of the Question Everything blog, which is found at questioneverything.typepad.com. He's a very good writer, he's a very good thinker, and he's a nice guy, and I think you'll enjoy listening to my conversation with George Mobis. Tell the listeners how you would describe biophysical economics, uh, especially in contrast to what supposedly normal economics is. Uh, Well, uh, for one thing, normal economics, or what they call the neoclassical economic model, uh, is something of a closed system. It really uh, doesn't take into account the inputs from nature and, in particular, the the energy inputs that the, the sun gives us. Uh, nor does it account for the outputs. So um, there's a there's a tendency to think that wealth is produced uh, sort of magically with uh, a little bit of technology and uh, a lot of uh, human ingenuity and so forth. Biophysical economics uh, takes all of that into account, but particularly the energy aspect, because uh, energy, unlike material, cannot be recycled. So once it goes through the system and is used to do work, it's gone. It it, uh, dissipates as uh, unusable heat. And so in biophysical economics, we're we're looking at things like the the, uh, fact that most of our energy, over 80% of our energy in in the developed world is coming from um, uh, fossil fuels. And fossil fuels are a finite resource that we're depleting at a very rapid rate. 
So that's a basic difference. The normal or neoclassical or neoliberal economists don't seem to have a clue. Because of that, they seem to rely on a kind of uh, crypto-theological set of formulas, equations, and models that increasingly have less and less to do with, uh, with reality. Well, I agree with that. The, the, um, if you look at their track record here over the last 20 years, their ability to predict, uh, which after all is part of their job. I mean, the politicians are looking to the economists to say, where's this all going? How does this all work out? And they're, they're doing an abysmal job of it. They seem to act like what Tom Wolfe has described as a clerisy who are protective of their prerogatives and secrets. Yeah, that, that's my impression, too, for the most part. I, um, I think human nature being what it is, they're, uh, they're simply responding to the fact that for so many, many, well, centuries almost, uh, they were able to get by with their views simply because they didn't have to take energy into account. Because it was there, and, and, and it was always, there was always more of it, and it was, it was always getting cheaper for a while. So I, I'm a little hesitant to worry too much about their religious <laughs> approach to it. Um, I mean, it, that's standing in the way of the general public's understanding. Well, isn't it also standing in the way of us actually facing effectively the problems that uh, confront us? It is, but I, my own feeling is that we will face those problems. And by we, I mean society at large. We will face those problems when they're kicking us in the face. I don't think that we're going to reason through and, uh, and discover one day, oh, gosh, uh, yeah, this is what we should be paying attention to, so let's do so before the worst happens. I think, I think kind of the worst is going to happen, and then people will start to get serious. Why don't you um, give us some idea of, of what you think these problems are? Well, um, they're, they're pretty much the ones that you've been writing about for quite a while, like uh, the uh, depletion of fossil fuels. It takes energy to do work. Uh, economy is based on the ability to do work and, and create wealth, and as your energy depletes, uh, your ability to do that uh, diminishes considerably. Um, but at the same time, uh, linked into that, of course, is the uh, burning of uh, fossil fuels produces carbon dioxide and the um, uh, kind of climate change situations that we're seeing right now that I think most people, most people who are scientifically minded agree are uh, due to this global warming. Uh, those are going to be tremendous challenges in the next couple of decades and right at a time when we won't have the kind of cheap energy that it takes to uh, uh, do the work necessary to adapt to that situation. So we're going to see food shortages. We're going to see flooding. We're going to see all kinds of things that we have no way of mitigating. So the consequence, or adapting to, so the consequence is going to be that uh, there's going to be huge displacements and probably a lot of suffering in various populations. I don't see a good outcome. You and others have described this as a population bottleneck, a population overshoot and resource scarcity bottleneck. Okay, so a bottleneck, uh, th this is a well-understood phenomena in uh, evolutionary biology. Um, bottlenecks occur when a species has 
um, uh, suffers a major change in their environment to which they cannot, uh, as individuals, adapt. And uh, there is tends to be a very mass die-off. Uh, the, the, the most dramatic one that is most recent that we know about was 65 million years ago when, the, when a comet struck the Yucatan Peninsula and um, uh, was a trigger event anyway in wiping out the dinosaurs. Well, most people would not equate uh, the predicament that we face with exactly with, uh, let's say, a meteor strike or an asteroid strike, right? I mean, we're, what we're, what's happening to us is um, more, much more complex and subtle, right? Well, it is, but it's the rate of change that I think is really the key to this. Um, the, all of the major die-offs that we know about uh, historically have come from rapid uh, climate changes caused by one thing or another, like massive volcano eruptions actually pushed humans uh, to a, into a bottleneck situation in Africa uh, early in the um, uh, in the evolution of Homo sapiens. Uh, there may have, at one time in, in the tip of uh, South Africa, there may have been as few as 10,000 individuals uh, that uh, resulted from a major volcanic eruption and, and climate change as a result of that. The um, Afterwards, after things settled down, of course, they, they were very successful and exploded, uh, eventually going out of Africa. But these bottlenecks are, are not um, unusual, nor do we really have any questions about what causes them. The real question for us is, have we extended, have we overshot the carrying capacity of a planet uh, when the energy supplies go away and the climate changes dramatically? This gets us back to the substance of biophysical economics. One of the uh, things we observe is this feedback loop in which a society's ability to generate uh, energy at the right return on investment for getting it out of the ground is, co is connected directly with capital formation, which means your ability to generate wealth and accumulate wealth. And um, because our energy is no longer cheap, we have a problem. We can know we, we we're now running out of money, including money to uh, get energy that's not cheap anymore, right? So it's a kind of revolving, you know, serpent eating its own tail situation. Would you see it that way? Oh yeah, the, um, it's a downward spiral for certain. Uh, you can't make more energy and you can't make more cheap energy because we're depleting the the stuff that was easy to get out of the ground. So that return on investment is as much a uh, energy return on investment as it is a financial return on investment if and the two are linked uh, completely so if you're getting a lower return on energy uh, for the for the amount of investment energy that you have to invest to get that energy then the uh, um, same thing is going to be true of the the financial aspects of it you're making less and I think right now the oil companies and, and uh, the fossil fuel industry in general is actually in an incredibly untenable position because their margins are getting squeezed, and uh, all they've got to show for it is these increasingly difficult uh, sources like the tar sands in Alberta or the uh, uh, deep ocean drilling platforms and so forth. That, that's extremely expensive stuff to pull out. And we've noticed, I think, that as the situation is getting worse, 
that the propaganda promoting an, an opposite point of view, that everything's all right, that everything's just fine. The, that propaganda seems to just be off the charts nowadays. You know, in the last month, we've had the, the cover story of the May Atlantic magazine uh, saying, uh, we'll never run out of oil. And stories all over the, you know, the major media saying, we're going to be the next Saudi Arabia, and we're going to be energy independent. And, and of course, the subtext of all this is not just that we're going to be energy independent, but that we're going to be able to continue driving to Walmart forever. What's your impression of this, the delusional thinking that is abroad in the land? I'm not really sure whether or not it's delusional. I've never really talked to any of these people. Um, I've read the articles, but uh, to the degree to which I suspect that there's – I know you're not big on um, uh, conspiracy theories, and I'm not either normally, but I do think the government has a tendency to uh, uh, message in a way that uh, you know is pretty uh, – pretty subtle. I don't know if you saw Naomi Wolf's latest uh, thing on this. Um, uh, the guy that, that uh, revealed the NSA. Uh, Snowden. Stuff. Snowden, yeah. She, uh, she's somewhat suspicious of the way that's all playing out. Um, and I, I think there's something to that. I think the, that the oil companies who Im- oil, coal, whatever, I can't help but believe there's some collusion there with the government. Uh, in general, um, particularly the financial sector, uh, and, and uh, well, the Fed, anyway. Um, but the, the, the way they're doing this just seems to me like they're tr- simply trying to convince people that everything is okay. And, I, and, you know, you and I have this different view of how things are and where how people are going to react once they find out that things really are this way. And there is no solution. Um, I guess if I were in their position, I'd want to keep things as calm as possible (laughs) until I figured out a getaway. Well, yeah, I personally think that there's a lot to that. But it it also seems that the oil and gas companies are simply desperate to generate more investment, and it's becoming more and more difficult to, for them to get the money to do all those expensive operations that they have to do out on the uh, uh, shale oil sites with, uh, you know, the running all the trucks with the fracking fluid and preparing the pads for the drilling and, uh, you know, these very expensive multi-million dollar wells that uh, cost much more than the conventional oil wells of yore. So I think, personally, that they're they're kind of desperate for capital investment. Well, I'm sure that's that's playing a part, especially the smaller operators, right? They're they've got to be they're cash strapped. I don't think the banks are loaning uh, what uh, the kinds of money that that they need. So I'm sure they're pretty uh, getting pretty desperate. Um, I I don't know about the majors. I mean, I really I read what uh, what's his name, the president of Shell, recently had to say and. Mm-hmm. About uh, you know you know we're technology is really uh, kicking in and and we're supplying the market at these prices. Well, those prices are killing the American economy as well as the rest of the world. So it can't last much longer. I'm I'm convinced this thing is going to come apart at the seams within the next five to ten years. Uh, and when you say this thing, do you do you mean the uh, shale oil venture or do you mean the American economy and the the way we live? Yeah, yeah, both, both really. I mean, they're they're hand in hand in hand. 
there seem to be two basic mechanisms for offsetting this energy capital formation problem that we're, that we're caught in. Um, and they are, number one, accounting fraud, uh, which is now pervasive through just about everything that, we, that money touches in, in, in the developed world. And the other one is, uh, of course, debt accumulation and debt issuance. And um, uh, does it make you nervous? Oh, <laughs> well, I, you know, in, in a sense, I've gotten over my fears. Uh, of course, I'm still not happy about what's happening, but I've, I've sort of accepted the, that this is inevitable. But in terms of actually thinking about what might set this whole thing off, I've been watching since I'm a professor and our um, – uh, you know, we're guilty of uh, increasing the cost of tuition and everything. Well, state legislatures are guilty of causing us to raise tuition, but we're expensive. Uh, we, uh, I've got uh, colleagues who have been complaining bitterly because they hadn't gotten their normal 2% raise per year for a while. Uh, while we were going after 2009, we were going through this financial crisis. And um, I'm looking around saying, guys, Everybody is hurting. Why should you uh, expect more? But we're raising tuitions. Students are getting are, are under incredible debt. What is it? Over a trillion dollars in uh, student yeah. debt right now. And what happens when they say when they're not getting jobs? I've got I've got two boys at home. One who graduated not too long ago from college, and he just recently got a. Eh, it's an okay job. He's he's going to be doing tutoring. Um, but what happens when those students say, I'm going into this incredible debt, uh, I can't default on it without consequences, but I have no job. I have no way to pay this back. Well, I keep on thinking that there's going to be what I call the magic moment when, you know, the message thunders through the Internet and Twitter and Facebook uh, and all of the under 30-year-old people tell each other that they're all going to stop paying their college loans on September 1st, let's say. Uh, I yeah, don't see why that wouldn't happen. I, I don't. That's that's a huge bubble, and uh, i got to believe it's going to have some impact. I'm not a, a financial guy. I don't really dig too much into that. I'm more interested in the energy aspect and sort of let the finances settle out where they will and just just looking at energy per se because it you know, it's a, it's a basic law of physics. You don't have energy. You don't do work. You don't what do have you, work. What have you observed in the uh, shale oil uh, venture that's been going on for the last 10 years? Um, what what conclusions have you drawn about what you're reading and seeing? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a desperation move, basically. Uh, the uh, amount of energy that it takes to get that shale oil out of the ground and to uh, uh, process it and make it available is huge uh, by comparison to even even to offshore oil, not not deep water, but regular offshore oil. Um, that just cannot go on. The margins there have to be extremely slim. In fact, some of the people I talk to are, are indicating that by the time you really take into account all of the energy inputs, uh, it may very well be negative. And uh, it's just uh, made feasible by the uh, oil prices that are still 
still high. They're still over West Texas Intermediate, still over 90 bucks a, a barrel. And uh, as long as that's the case, uh, people are going to be paying more for energy at the pump. Uh, you know, my way of thinking is that there are some things that we could do that would be meaningful, perhaps. I mean, we don't really know for sure, but um, things like uh, rebuilding the American conventional railroad system and uh, putting some real emphasis on walkability and on walkable communities generally and and making some real kind of logistical rearrangements in American life. But there seems to be absolutely no political interest in doing this. Oh, as Dick Cheney said it, best, uh, the American way of life is non-negotiable. The politicians get elected because they tell people what they want to hear. I have a personal theory that, uh, and it's not too elegant or complex, but um, uh, it's the idea that we are heading for what I would call a reset. The journey to it uh, is liable to be kind of disorderly and harsh and, and fraught with vicissitude. Um, but uh, I've called it, I've given it a name, uh, which is the title of one of my recent novels, The World Made by Hand. Do you have a, personally an idea that, that a reset is even possible? Because you may be a bit, a bit more doomerish than I am, actually. Yeah, that's, that, um, that's altogether possible. Um, I have been, I guess for a while, the only thing that I advocate, because it, it's, it, it's you know, it's not really possible to advocate, let's say, to government or to um, just about any uh, other kind of audience. But the one thing I have been advocating is the uh, relocalization and learning and practicing permaculture. As a system scientist, uh, I came to understand permaculture as the application of system science to not just agriculture, but to a whole living uh, situation where you can become essentially self-sufficient within certain community bounds. And um, that basically, if there is what you call a reset, it's going to end up looking like a bunch of isolated communities. I'm not even sure trains would do any good because um, you still need quite a bit of energy to operate trains, not, not as much as trucks, obviously, but still... Uh, there's upkeep on the rails and things of that nature. Well, does your view of this um, comprise, let's say, an incremental journey, uh, a stair-step process, as you know, John Michael Greer would call it, where uh, you're you're not really just collapsing all at once. You're you're making a, a sort of a, a falling from one step down to a lower step by stages, and then in between there are kind of periods of stability. Yeah, I so Greer and I have gone back and forth on this. Um, uh, I, I'm familiar with his idea of um, catabolic uh, ca collapse. Catabolic collapse, exactly. And <clears throat> I base mine on, uh, admittedly, a more theoretical model. I think everybody looked at Hubbard's uh, curve, which is uh, somewhat symmetrical. Well, it is symmetrical. Um, and and have assumed that, uh, you know, while it won't be a smooth curve, at least it'll look a lot like that. Um, I developed a theoretical model uh, several years back, which looked at what we call the outer envelope of possibility. In other words, it's the boundary conditions for energy extraction from a finite resource. 
And uh, even if you could, if, by whatever accounting fraud or any other mechanism, that, that we could keep on extracting energy as much as we possibly could, eventually that outer boundary is reached, and the shape of that curve is not symmetrical uh, with respect to it's – it's not a normal curve. It's a very steep decline, not exactly a shark's fin, as some people call them, but, but very steep. And the reason is, is because the energy return on energy investment is going up at a slight exponential rate, and eventually that catches up with you. So it's not just a matter of, you know, there being these fits and starts on the way down. It's a matter of that the shape of that curve dictates a fairly rapid um, decrease. Uh, which means that pe people, I mean, there's nothing that they can do. They can start burning the forests, and we'll be even worse off with that. So I really don't see any mechanism, given the fact that it takes so much energy per capita to even maintain, uh, you know, a diet. Uh, I, I just don't see the mechanism whereby there could be that kind of catabolic uh, collapse and and it's settle out at some uh, – nobody knows what the number would be. I, uh, what I basically see happening over the next 100 years is there will be several – I don't know how many. I don't, I don't even know where they could exist, but it's going to be determined largely by climate and what kind of food production you can do locally. But just a few uh, communities that have hit on the right combination of – Location, 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 and uh, right kinds of appropriate technology and tools and so forth necessary to uh, raise their own food. It sounds a little bit like you think the, the best survival vocation would be uh, to be in the, a realtor in the real estate business. <laughs> well, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, if you're talking about making money, I guess, uh, for the Not short really. term. That, yeah. But, there, you know, there are an awful lot of people in America out there who practice a, a kind of belief system that I refer to as techno-narcissism or techno-grandiosity. Mm -hmm. the, the idea that if only we can uh, invent a phone app to replace gasoline, you know, we'll be, we'll be just fine. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, uh, th that um, belief system doesn't seem to bump up against any kind of resistance. I mean, everybody just accepts it. Well, again, human nature, it's, it has actually been our history up till now that we have been uh, developing technologies that are pretty wowy, and um, uh, we are informivores and we love novelty, and so this this is all played into the the uh, uh, developing zeitgeist that we're we are innovative and we will innovate our way out of it but uh one of the problems with one of the central problems with this is that that technology is not energy and they're not substitutable that's right uh you're familiar of course with tom friedman's uh version of this where he's he's calling for uh, uh et energy technology and uh almost equating it with it information technology, 
and never bothering to think that uh, the one thing that made information technology as successful as it was was this idea of Moore's Law, which is not really a law, but the, the idea that we can continue to decrease the size of the computing elements, um, actually uh, doubling the, uh, the amount of uh, number of elements on a uh, die, a uh, silicon die, uh, every 18 months to two years. And it's, that's been playing out for us, and it's worked really, really well. I'm, I'm a beneficiary of that um, in terms of my current situation. But it doesn't apply to energy. Energy and and macro scale mechanical systems work on completely different principles. So the American public is getting um, their information from authorities like the columnists in the New York Times who really don't know what they're talking about. Exactly. Along with my idea that we're going to reset to some other level or maybe a, a set of stages of stair steps of, of new economy. I also imagine that we're going to encounter uh, a very harsh, psychologically difficult time out from our notion of what progress is. This is a highly theoretical and, and I don't expect people to really grasp it easily, but uh, it turns out that in systems, as uh, systems that are in formation, shall we say, they they have not yet realized their full complexity potential. That as long as there is an energy flow that provides what we call free energy to do work of organization in that system, the uh, the system will tend to become progressively more complex and more uh, stabilized over time. If you reverse the flow of energy or, or, or cut the flow of energy such that there's no more uh, excess free energy available to do that kind of work, the system will retrograde. It will, it will start to devolve. And we can show this mathematically. It's not a very difficult thing to, uh, to show. Um, but it is something that, that, that uh, people really don't have a good feel for because we've never seen it. We've, we've, as, a, as a species, we've never actually experienced it. I have a kind of running gag in my blog that um, Japan will be the first of the advanced technological industrial nations to go medieval. But it's only a half a gag. It's, it's also half serious. What do you think about that? Um, well, I don't really know a whole lot about Japan, but I think that's going to be the pattern for everywhere except the undeveloped world. Well, there is one thing about Japan that you don't have to know a lot about. And it's simply that they have absolutely no fossil fuel resources of their own. Right, right. And they have a, a nuclear power industry that's in deep distress and not particularly trusted by the population. Right. So are they yep. going to go medieval before, let's say, uh, uh, France or uh, Bolivia or the USA? Well, uh, again, I'm not... Uh, uh, You're not handicapping? <laughs> yeah, I would. I would probably not want to make those kinds of predictions. I, the the thing is, we're living in a chaotic environment, and uh, in my view, almost anything could happen anytime, anywhere. Um, triggers the, the the system is in a a kind of tension. I'm talking about the global system is in a kind of tension 
that uh, I think you could see an outbreak. Uh, I mean, we're seeing it to some degree in Europe right now. Um, and and that's an energy problem as well, I sure. mean, fundamentally. Um, uh, some people would call it a state of criticality, correct? Yes, right. And right. and exactly. there, uh, I think what you're describing are multiple points of criticality. Exactly. I mean, it's not just Europe. It's the Middle East. Uh, Japan financially is in a state of criticality. Um, um, the U.S. in many ways is in a state of criticality. And, um, and it, it, we really don't know what's going to push any of these systems uh, into um, instability. Exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> well, let me uh, wind up with a kind of a philosophical question for you, you know, based on your interest in evolution. Um, we live in the shadow of entropy, and uh, yet uh, philosopher Ken Wilber stated that the universe is winding up, not winding down. Um, what is your idea of how biological evolution fits into that picture, and how does it relate to uh, economics as as you understand it? Oh, my gosh, that's a huge topic. I have uh, developed a modeling um, approach that's called complex adaptive and evolvable systems. And uh, without going into some of the, the details, it really ultimately does depend upon uh, energy flow. Evolution can... Um, can move in a particular direction, uh, given that energy flow. Um, we are now, right now, we are in a state where our cultural and biological evolutions are sort of locked with the cultural evolution having, and it's a co-evolution, having taken off because of the uh, advent of, of using fossil fuels. Um, I do think that once the dust settles, and there's going to be a lot of dust in this, if humans do survive at all, I think that they will go back to kind of the situation that they were in prior to uh, agriculture. Uh, that doesn't mean we're not going to have agriculture. As I said, permaculture seems to me to be a, a salvation of, type, of a type. Uh, but we will be back in a situation where we've got small communities, tribal if you want to call them that, where uh, uh, human beings can can now live off of the solar flows as opposed to the solar stocks in the, in the fossil fuels. And I do think that that will give, in the long distant time, I would think that will give humans an opportunity to evolve further in uh, uh, various directions, but in particular in their capacity to be uh, what uh, E.O. Wilson calls eusocial animals, that is highly sociable and uh, cooperative as opposed to competitive. I don't know. I mean, this is, a, this is all speculation, but if you look back over what evolutionary history has been, as long as the flow of energy from the sun through the earth to the deep space um, the heat uh, removal to deep space. Evolution has produced ever more complex and capable brains. I don't see that stopping. Well, George, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I hope that you'll come back to the podcast another time. Uh, this is liable to be a pretty interesting year or two ahead. It will. Well, thanks. Well, for thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you.
You've been listening to the Kunzercast featuring James Howard Kunzler. Send email to jim at kunzercast.com. You can interact with other listeners, hear previous episodes, and find out more about this podcast at kunzercast.com. <laughs>